Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. I am really excited that we're going to be speaking with someone who's a longtime friend of yours, Paul Stamets. Yep, I've known Paul for over 40 years. We have worked together, traveled together, picked mushrooms together. You know, he's uh, just a constant source of interesting ideas. And yummy mushrooms. And yummy mushrooms. I am delighted to welcome Paul Stamets to our podcast today. Paul is a speaker, author, mycologist, medical researcher, and entrepreneur. He is considered an intellectual and industry leader in fungi, lecturing extensively about a wide range of mushroom species, their habitat, their medicinal use, and their production. He also contributes to research showing how mushrooms can help the health of people, and the planet. His central premise is that habitats have immune systems, just like people do, and that mushrooms are cellular bridges between the two. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Hi, Paul. (laughs) Hey, Andy, how are you? I'm good. And Victoria, pleasure to see you again. Thanks. Great to see you. The last time I saw you live was at an eclipse. Really? Oh my goodness. A lot has happened since then. I want to begin our conversation today with some basic questions. Um, And Andy, I want to start with you. There is a really common misconception that fungi are plants. And could you really help our listeners understand uh, how fungi are either not plant nor animal? Well, fungi are in a separate kingdom. And uh they're more closely related to animals than they are to plants. We share more DNA sequences with mushrooms than we do with plants. Paul, you are so fond of mushrooms that I have seen you wearing a hat made out of mushrooms. Can you tell us how you developed your love of mushrooms? Well, I came to mushrooms at a very early age when after a summer rain in Northern Ohio, we had a cottage on Lake Erie and puffballs would appear and my twin brother and I would stomp in them, and I readily found that they would explode upon impact, so I pelted my twin brother as many puffballs as possible. <laughs> my mother came out of the house uh, yelling at me, don't throw puffballs at your twin brother because the spores will make him blind. Well, she went back in the house, and I thought, okay, that's good information. I pelted him with even more. Um, <laughs> but that's my earliest memories. But the fact that mushrooms appear so quickly, now in our in our viewscape with animals and plants, we have months, years of familiarity of contacts daily. And mushrooms, which are come up, you know, and disappear in four or five days. And some can feed you, some can kill you, some are medicinal, some can send you on a spiritual journey. For that, which is so ephemeral, but so powerful, it's natural for people to fear or have apprehension about something they don't understand that's so potent. And so mushrooms end up being an eclectic field of research. And largely through Andy's encouragement, I have set my path where I am today and unveiling these, this vast body intellect of knowledge of fungi in our ecosystem is leading to some very uh, novel discoveries. And nature's already discovered these things. We're just rediscovering them. 
So we're going to dive into that, but um, you said something early on about the fear. Uh, there's a famous saying that I know Andy hates. There are old mushroom hunters and bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old, old mushroom hunters. But I'm I don't know, old, I might... old mushroom hunter. <laughs> <laughs> I have eaten many species uh, that, were, that are listed in books as having unknown edibility. I mean, of course, I'm care- I know which mushrooms can kill me, and I avoid those. But I've done a lot of experimenting, and there is greatly exaggerated fear of mushroom poisoning, especially in the English-speaking world. Going along with that is another attitude that mushrooms have no nutritional value and that they are of no medical benefit. Also, both very wrong ideas. Mushrooms have a high protein content, more like animal food than plant food, and the medicinal properties are vast, and this is a major area in which Paul has worked for a long time. So, Andy, how did you become so enamored with mushrooms? I grew up in a row house in Philadelphia that had a very small lawn in front of it. Occasionally, mushrooms would come up on the lawn, and my mother would tell me not to touch them because I'd get poisoned by them. I think that made me interested in them. And uh, she was afraid to buy mushrooms in the supermarket. So the fact that they were forbidden and scary, I think, attracted me to them. I began reading about them. And then around 1970, I think, uh, I'm, I was out for the first time in the Pacific Northwest in the fall. I, I saw a great profusion of wild mushrooms. I began meeting people who collected mushrooms. I began eating wild mushrooms. It was just a whole world that opened up. It was also the time when people were beginning to discover magic mushrooms in the Pacific Northwest. And I was at the same time learning about Chinese medicine and was fascinated that mushrooms were so prominent in traditional Chinese medicine and were so completely ignored in Western medicine. So blindness and poisoning. (laughs) Well, actually, Andy uh, pioneered the edibility unknown culinary feast at the the Telluride Mushroom Conference. And uh, a group of us experts would choose a species whose edibility was unknown. And um, we also had some good reasons because there was no species necessarily in that taxonomic group that were known to be poisonous, but we only know which mushrooms are poisonous or edible from the previous experiences of people who eaten them before us. So anyhow, so Andy was great in pioneering, um, let's test this species. It's uh, logically, it's unlikely it's going to be deadly poisonous. And one of the rules, and Andy speaks of this, if it most deadly poisonous mushrooms typically take many, many hours before you have, see any symptoms or feel any symptoms, you know, the shortest might be six to eight, or usually it's 12 to 24 hours. But if you eat a mushroom and you have adverse effects in the first hour, usually don't worry about it. It's just GI upset <laughs> and it passes. So the deadly toxic uh, species have delayed symptom onset. And so, um, but we had lots of fun and uh, we pioneered several new species that were not known to be edible. And a lot of them just didn't taste good, but some yeah. of them were turned out to be really good. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads me to a question I've been wanting to ask, which is, um, which is your favorite mushroom to eat? And that question is for each of you. Paul, you start. Well, I'm fascinated by matsutake pine mushrooms, because in the Asian culture, in the, in the 70s and late 60s, there was no collecting of pine mushrooms, what the Japanese call matsutake, in the Northwest by, by Americans, generally speaking, except for uh, Japanese immigrants. And so it was not considered a good edible mushroom. But in fact, the Japanese had developed this technique of cutting the mushrooms. And when you inhale, just before you put the mushrooms in your mouth, 
it stimulates the, the receptors in your nose and it actually causes a tingling sensation. And as most people know, if you hold your nose closed, you can't taste. And so the Japanese elevated this, this mycoculinary experience to a level that none of us, you know, the, the people that I know, none of us knew about this. And so, and when you do that, there's a robust flavor profile that then emerges that you would otherwise not experience. So pine mushrooms, matsutake uh, is still my favorite wild mushroom. So this is the equivalent of uh, the aroma and really enjoying the aroma of a glass of red wine before having a sip. Yeah, the Japanese say matsutake is all about aroma. And I would agree with Paul. That's right up there with one of my favorites. I would also put right up there white truffles. So I think that's also a fantastic experience of, of both. It many, hits many senses. Okay, let's go to the extreme opposite, white button mushrooms. A lot of um, people, that's the only mushroom they ever eat. Is there any uh, health benefit to eating a white mushroom at all? And Andy, do you want to give your usual warning about mushrooms here? <laughs> well, no mushrooms should be eaten raw. Mushrooms are relatively indigestible because they have tough cell walls that are broken down by cooking. Uh, many species have toxins of one sort or another that are broken down by cooking. They have compounds that interfere with protein digestion that are broken down by cooking. Unfortunately, the button mushroom has several carcinogens in it, uh, most of which are broken down by cooking, but one is not. So if you're going to eat those, I think they should be cooked over high heat well. And they have some medicinal benefits as well. Paul, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, there's ergothionines, which are very potent antioxidants that are present in button mushrooms. These are, these are being looked upon very carefully. But Andy's absolutely correct. And um, you should cook all mushrooms, and in particular button mushrooms. 70% of button mushrooms are consumed raw in salads. Mm -hmm. And there's a simple experiment all listeners can do. You can take a, a small shiitake or a small button mushroom and swallow it whole. And then the next morning, look in your stool. And if it's been uncooked, the mushroom comes out in your stool in perfect form. Now, if you take that same mushroom, not exactly the same mushroom, but, <laughs> but you, a similar size mushroom and you boil it in water for five minutes or you saute it and you swallow it, it's digested. So mushrooms are not digestible because they're very, very tough fibers that constitute them. They have to be tendered by heat or acid. The only mushrooms that are typically, we don't have that recommendation for, are for truffles. And Andy's right. The white truffle, tuber magnatum, is my favorite truffle by far. It's amazingly aromatic. And, and that mushroom you don't cook. So, um, but you're not eating it for, for nutrition. You're eating it for fragrance and aroma. And all these mushrooms are quite miscible in animal fats. So part of the unami uh, bringing out the flavor of mushrooms, when you combine it with animal fats, it really is a, it really brings out the flavor. Um, it makes the mushrooms taste a lot better. I, I eat button mushrooms broiled on a pizza. Mm -hmm. right. uh, but but I will not eat them raw in, in a salad. And we should mention that button mushrooms include uh, white button mushrooms, brown button mushrooms, criminy mushrooms, portobello mushrooms. It's all the same species. Which is agaricus. Agaricus brunescens. So um, let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum and talk about your favorite mushroom from a health benefit perspective. You know, if you had to just limit yourself to one mushroom for health benefit, which one would you pick? Uh, that's hard. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. Okay, how about two? Well, what I'd like to answer 
that is that what's your what's your target mm-hmm. you know what what are you looking for are you looking for nutrition I, uh, you know are you looking for health supporting uh, immunity there's so much literature out there on just the common edible mushrooms like shiitake and maitake and enoki take um, there was a a professor dr dr ikikawa from the national cancer center in tokyo japan he wrote a series of articles and one he was an epidemiologist and he was sent to the Nagano prefecture because there was a dearth, a drop in all overall cancer rates in this mountainous region of Japan. And he went there to study and he published this. And after 10 years, he was able to disambiguate the cofactors and found that there is a concentration of enoki mushroom farmers. And there is a statistically sub- uh, significant reduction in cancer across the board in that prefecture were the families who consumed, whose members of the family worked at Enoki cultivation facilities. What that means is that, and most farmers know this, is that employees take away the blems, we call them the blemished ones. They're not perfect for market. They're still good to eat. And so they had a per capita consumption eight times greater than that of the national average. And so they're able to associate this with their Enoki mushroom uh, consumption. And this led to a discovery of a protein-bound polysaccharide called flamulin, named after Flamulina volutipes, that's the enoki mushroom. And so when this was published in a Western medical journal, is some of the first evidence that we saw that mushrooms enhance immunity as a tonic. And so these are immunomodulators that help, help the body become more in a ready state. So there's lots of mushrooms out there. My personal favorite right now is agaricon. It's a rare old growth mushroom. Uh, we're doing lots of research on that. But in terms of culinary mushrooms, you know, shiitake, maitake, enoki, oyster mushrooms, they all have these benefits. So Andy, I won't limit you to one, but if you were going to uh, respond, one of our listeners wrote in asking about the health benefits of mushrooms. Uh, I think uh, Paul just spoke a little bit to the nutritional benefit, the potential benefit of reducing uh, the risk of developing cancer. But maybe you could speak to some of the other mushrooms that are uh, really appreciated for their value in um, making us healthier. Well, there's so many of these, Victoria. First of all, some mushrooms lower cholesterol. They have natural uh, statins in them, the same molecules that originally isolated from molds and turned into statin drugs. Shiitake is one of them. Oyster mushrooms is one of them. Lion's mane has a unique nerve growth factor uh, that may help preserve cognitive function and treat nerve disorders. Uh, Reishi has anti-inflammatory effect that's very significant. Tree-ear mushrooms have an anticoagulant effect that may help reduce risk of heart attack. But I think then there's this general category of what Paul would call host defense. Um, That is that uh, many of these mushrooms, especially the polypore mushrooms, which are the ones that you often find growing like shelf-like on dead or living trees and forests, None of these are toxics. Uh, Most of them are woody or bitter, so they're not used as food mushrooms, but made into extracts. And these seem to reduce risk of viral infection, bacterial infection, may offer protection against cancer. Uh, So those effects are particularly interesting, and especially in this present day when we're dealing with a a viral pandemic, that's of special interest. Can both of you speak to that a little bit more? Because... Clearly, uh, for the woody, uh, bitter mushrooms, we're not 
eating them in our diets. We're taking them as dietary supplements. So where do you see the role of uh, including a mushroom extract in our uh, regimen, in our supplement regimen? Is it something we should do all the time? Is it something we should do during a pandemic? Is it something we should do in general during flu season or if we're traveling? How, how do you think about this? Well, let me just say I take myself all the time. Uh, I take several of Paul's products, you know, one called My Community, which is a encapsulated extract of a number of different species, a liquid extract called Samet 7. And uh, I've used those for a very long time. If I'm going to be exposed to uh, risk from travel or going to an area where there might be higher risk of infection, I might up the doses of those or add some other ones to it. Yeah, we, we have actually focused a lot on um, the cytokines and interleukins. Uh, the cytokines contain interleukins, or they're secreted by leukocytes. This is your messenger molecules. They're proteins that signal your immune cells to react. And we've done, there's up to, putatively up to 50 different interleukins. Uh, we've surveyed about 15 of them. And this is what's very surprising to us is we're seeing species specificity and uh, what I mean by that, it, it stimulates some uh, interleukins. M- most of these are part of your immune response, so they're pro-inflammatory. That's what happens. But some of them are anti-inflammatory, and this really speaks to the fact that these are immunomodulators. They uh, put the immune system in a ready state of activity so they can respond to things like uh, viral assaults, etc., I, I, we've been searching for the antivirals molecules per se, but that's not really speaks to our own biology. We've, we've been consuming complex foods for millions of years without not single molecules. Uh, and this consortium of molecules that are present are upregulating uh, gene sequences of these interleukins in some surprising ways. And so this, this, it, when talking to all these immunologists, it's amazing how complicated it is and how little that we actually know. But we do know that these mushroom mycelial-based extracts are not cytotoxic. Uh, They upregulate immunity. And uh, one thing I want to mention, so there's a number of physicians, no doubt, listening to this, there's LPSs, lipoproteins, um, and polysaccharides are secreted by endotoxins uh, from bacteria. And one group of scientists thought that herbs and mushrooms elicited immune response because of LPSs. And we published a paper recently showing that the immunomodulation is independent of LPSs. Mushrooms rot quickly. So if you make a, you take an extract of a rotting mushroom, you'll have bacterial endotoxins. And so what we're able to show is that the immunomodulatory effects of these mushroom extracts are not related to LPSs, and that they specifically uh, target immune modulation in a way that uh, allows for pro-immune response buffered with an anti-inflammatory response. So what this all means is that because there's so many different interleukins that are being stimulated, is that we're finding different species have different interleukin profiles. What they do share in common right now is the excitation of interleukin-10 and 1RA, these are anti-inflammatory cytokines. These, I think, could be very helpful for people maintaining a ready state of immunity without causing a a cascade of deleterious effects. So, Victoria, let me say, I I think 
And Paul heard me say this. When did you have that conference in Port Townsend? 2005. So I spoke there about the 1918 flu, if you remember. And yep. at that time, there was very little information about that. And the fact that it selectively killed young, healthy people who died of a cytokine storm and lungs filled with fluid. And this was very new information then. And in that circumstance, you would not want your immunity boosted or enhanced. You know, it's, you might even want to take steroids to downregulate immunity. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting to see this now being much talked about because the SARS-CoV-2 virus has the potential to do something similar, though it probably doesn't provoke it as intense as that uh, strain of flu. But I think the question that comes up from a lot of our colleagues is, is there a risk of using some of these mushrooms if you have active symptoms of uh, COVID-19? I think we should be talking about modulating immunity, as you said, not boosting immunity, because there's That's aspects right. of immunity you don't want boosted. And this is something, actually, Andy's been advocating this a long time. These are tonics for the immune system. <laughs> These aren't immunostimulants. Right. You know, insofar as you're immunodepressed, your immune system is not in the, in the optimal ready state of being able to respond to these stressors. And so what this is consistent with the use of mushrooms for thousands of years in Asia. These tend to tone the immune system to a healthier ready state of activity to be able to respond. Mm -hmm. And so this is where immunostimulating drugs have lots of adverse of, uh, effects and are, are looked upon as being not appropriate in the challenges that we face today. So, but Andy was far ahead of the field of this medicine and talking these things as not being immunostimulants, but as immunotonics. And I think that that's really what these things do. They tone the immune system. And as we age, and I hate to admit I'm getting older, <laughs> but uh, we, we're on this slow slope to immunological decline. And um, this is why, and also lion's mane is one of my absolute favorite of all mushrooms. And we've been doing research tests with lion's mane and with a company called Neurofit, which is a laboratory complex in France that analyzes uh, and looks for, pre, uh, for drugs the drug development pathways for preventing Alzheimer's or other forms of neurological dementia. And we've got just fascinating results back uh, on lion's mane that, that supports what uh, Dr. Kawagishi first discovered in 1994, that lion's mane causes neurogenesis. And so th these are fantastic. We have drugs, we have foods, and then we have nutritional supplements. But where's the category for medicinal foods? There needs to be a new category where you can say these foods have pharmacologically demonstrable beneficial effects, but they are not truly drugs. Well, that's a very Eastern concept. You know, in, uh, in East Asia, there is not a distinction, clear distinction made between medicines and foods. And many ingredients in Chinese cuisine are there as much for their perceived medicinal effect as for their flavors or textures. And in our part of the world, we separate these into probably different categories. So I agree with that medicinal foods would be great to get in the habit of thinking that way. I suspect that many of our listeners are unfamiliar with the Garakon, which I know is one of your favorite mushrooms. Could you tell us something about that? You know, its history, what it looks like, and... I've dedicated my life to this, Andy knows. Um, <laughs> well, Agaricon has a multi-thousand year history of use. Dioscorides first described it in 65 AD in the very first Materia Medica as Elixirium ad longum vitam, the elixir of long life. It was specifically described by Dioscorides and, and used for hundreds of thousands of years as an anti-inflammatory for pulmonary illnesses. 
It was used to fight uh, congestion, later to be known as tuberculosis, from mycobacterium tuberculosis. And this mushroom is a rare species, only grows in the old growth forests. I just found out yesterday it was declared in Europe on the red list of extinction mm. uh, in 2019. And this mushroom is resident in the old growth forests of Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, British Columbia. I now have 62 strains of agaricon, by far the largest library in the world. Andy and I frequent an island, a remote island in British Columbia, and there's a big repository. And Andy, this is new information. We just got it yesterday. But I, I uh, submitted 11 different strains of agaricon to GenBank, fully sequenced. And we have now see there's a differentiation. And on this remote island in British Columbia, four strains that we sequence are genetically distinct, not even in the same subclade. They are evolutionarily distinct. So how is it possible that this small little island, 14 by 7 miles, wherever it is, would have such a diversity of agaricon? So what now this speaks to the uh, discovery of penicillin. Penicillium chrysogenum was discovered by Alexander Fleming, but there was no strain that was able to be commercialized. Uh, and so even they discovered it, you know, 1928 or it was, got the Nobel Prize in 1945. It wasn't until researchers found a moldy cantaloupe in Chicago and that penicillium chrysogenum strain turned out to be a hyper producer that allowed for the commercialization of penicillin, which many historians believe was a major factor in winning World War II. The British and the Americans had it. The Japanese and the Germans didn't. So concerned with the British researchers, they impregnated the collar, the collars of their shirts with spores of this mm -hmm. rare of this rare strain. So should their laboratories be bombed, they could reconstitute the strain. So similarly, agaricon has an enormous microdiversity between the strains. What does and it so, look like? Oh, tell people what it looks like. It's a, it looks like a giant beehive from a distance. It's uh, it's big. Uh, it's small, but, but big, hard woodcock it has annual growth rings. It has been suggested to be the oldest, longest living mushroom in the world, and that these in, in the fruit body state. There's one or two other species that are competing with it, but about 100 years in age. These things are massive. If they fell on your head, they'd knock you out. I mean, they're, they're really hard. Paul, you um, gifted us one, and we still have it um, at our center uh, on a shelf for everyone who to look at uh, when they come and visit. One of the biggest ones I have is Andy gave me one for my birthday. <laughs> that's, a, that's a sign of a true friend, right? So what, yeah, are the proper, well, what are the properties that you're most interested about, agaricon? Okay, well, let me go down. This is where... You know, these things are complex in their attributes, but we published an article in the Journal of Ethnopharmacology on the chlorinated coumarins that come out of agaricon that are active against tuberculosis, XDTBR, multi-drug resistant strains of, of, of tuberculosis. We published that because it was folklorically known to uh, fight tuberculosis. And so we tested that with Scott Transplow at the Tuberculosis Research Institute University of Chicago, we published that. The other attributes, and I worked with the National Center for Natural Products Research. We never published this, but we found, uh, my work with the BioShield program, we found it was highly active against orthopoxes, uh, including vaccinia, cowpox, and smallpox. With bioguided fractionation, 
It took over five years. I have a great debt of gratitude to Samira Ross, who led the, the bioguided fractionation at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy, NC, NCNPR. And we isolated two novel anti-smallpox molecules. Okay, so we have anti-tuberculosis molecules. We have anti-pox molecules. It has very, very strong activity against other viruses, but we don't know why. And the mode of action may, is something we don't understand. There may be a molecules in there, but we hunted for them. We couldn't find it. Bioguided fractionation for the listeners is basically you have a natural product and you then use a polar solvent and a non-polar solvent. Polar would be water. Non-polar would be like hexane. And then you fractionate it into two fractions. Okay, you have A and B. Now you test each one of those. And did the activity go up or go down? Well, that's a decision tree. You go down and you keep on going down that decision tree. And then the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy identified two novel molecules active against pox. We have not been able to find the molecules that are responsible for the other activity. Moreover, we're pretty certain now there isn't a single molecule. It is activating gene sequences that are secreting and activating these interleukins that then allow your innate immunity to target these viruses. So I could be proven wrong, but the activity that we found against flu viruses and herpes and, and these other problematic viruses are more, much more likely to the consortium effect of eliciting an immune response than it is the one individual molecule because these molecules are present in very tiny numbers. And um, I've often thought if there is one molecule that's responsible for the activity, of these natural extracts, then that molecule must be the most potent molecule ever discovered in the history of medicine. It's highly unlikely. So it looks like it's an eliciting of the immune response that consequentially allows your innate immunity, your host defensive immunity, to be able to reduce these pathogens. Thank you, Paul. Some of our listeners will want to hear you explain what is the difference between mycelium and mushrooms? Oh, I love this question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So mycelium makes mushrooms, okay? Mycelium is like the roots to a tree and the tree or the apple to the tree is the fruit. The fruit body is the mushroom. And then it comes from underground, the root structure. Mycelium can be, it's only one cell wall thick. The largest organism in the world is a mycelial mat in Eastern Oregon, 2,200 acres in size. There can be more than eight miles of these threads of mycelium in a cubic inch. They're one cell wall thick. Now, any microbiologist out there knows there's hundreds of millions of microbes in a single cubic inch of soil. How is it that these fine filaments of fungi can survive in such a hostile environment? It's because they epigenetically, the stimulus of their genome against bacterial pathogens, upregulates immune defenses, that prevents them from being consumed. This is why the largest organism in the world in the world is 2,200 acres in size. So when the mushrooms, the mycelium is resident in the ground for weeks, months, years, and then with sudden environmental change, water, you know, catastrophes, landslides, fires, all sorts of other stimuli, it's triggered the mycelium to produce a mushroom. Now, the, from the mycelium that's in the ground for perhaps hundreds of years comes a mu- up a mushroom that rots in five days. Mushrooms don't have a good immunity. They're, they're not designed to. They're inviting insects and bacteria, et cetera, 
They're part of the nutritional life cycles of the ecosystem, the forest. So mushrooms are made of laminated mycelium. This is why we take a mushroom, we take a scalpel, we take a piece of the, uh, the tissue, we put it on a petri dish, it immediately becomes mycelium because it's compacted mycelium. The difference is the thing, single threads of mycelium are producing extracellular metabolites. Mm-hmm. And this is part of their host defensive immunity that they're being expressed that prevents them from being consumed. But when they form a fleshy, nutritious mushroom that's fragrant, it attracts microbores, humans, squirrels, birds. It wants to be consumed. It wants its spores to be spread. So it's, it's designed, in a sense, to rot. So they're protein-dense, they're nutritional-dense, but mushrooms themselves don't have a good immunity. Your research has really looked very broadly at how mushrooms can improve the health of ecosystems throughout. So you've looked at things as varied as bee colony collapse, uh, remediating toxic soil, renewable energy. We've spent the you know, half hour already talking about uh, the potential health benefits for humans. Where are you going next? <laughs> well, I, this is my, I, so I don't have a PhD. So I, I was accepted into four or five graduate schools by married a woman 11 years older than me when I was, when I was uh, 22. I couldn't afford to go to graduate school. So I, I had a, I was self-taught more or less. But we just recently published in Nature, scientific reports on helping bees with these polypore mushroom extracts. Now, with these polypore mushroom extracts, one treatment, we reduced uh, several viruses, the Lake Lake Sinai virus, 45,000 to one with one treatment in 12 days in their sugar water. Hmm. We reduced the deformed wing virus like 879 to one with one treatment 12 days later. All commercial beekeepers use sugar water Hmm. and we put 1% 1% of the extract, one drop per 100 drops into, the, into their sugar feed water. Mm-hmm. And then bees used to fly for nine days, honeybees, now they're flying for four days and 1,000 flowers a day. So there's 5,000 less flowers being pollinated. These viruses now have spread to all wild bees. So all bees in the world are infected with these viruses. It's the biggest threat to worldwide food biosecurity until the COVID-19 perhaps that we knew of. And so I'm the lead author with the USDA scientists, Washington State University scientists, about nine of us. And what this is a big deal to me because I checked yesterday and we're going to stop, we're still in the top 1% of all articles published in the nature publication ecosystem. Only 7% of the articles submitted by authors to nature get published. So it's a very, very uh, selective journal. Now, why is it in the top 1% of all articles published in nature? It's because it's the first time I know of that a natural product that can be more powerful than a pharmaceutical. And it's because it upregulates immunity. What Andy's been talking about all, all these years is that getting the immune system in a state of readiness allows you to endogenously have defenses against these pathogens without having to resort to a single molecule pharmaceutical. So my bee research is, is really my kind of big breakthrough because now it's a bridge and the same extracts that reduce viruses in bees are the same extracts that we prove with Project BioShield that reduces flu viruses, pox viruses, and herpes viruses. Well, that's viruses that harm bees, swine, birds, and people. 
So I think there's a molecular bridge of the mycelial networks in the ecosystem that influences the immunity of the host population. And when we cut down the forest, we're removing the menu of food for these polypore and other mushrooms that can help the immunity of the commons. So the war against nature is a war against our own biology. We denature the forest by cutting down the forest. We're robbing the immune systems of nature. Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards. During this unprecedented time managing the physical and emotional challenges of the coronavirus, the Andrew Weil Center is here to support you. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast. Well, I have a general philosophical question that doesn't have an answer, but I'd be interested in uh, hearing speculation about it. Viruses are part of the ecosystem. They're always going to be there. And, uh, you know, many, many people think that you get an infectious disease because you're unlucky enough to cross the path of a bad microbe. But there's a great deal of evidence that it's possible to live in, if not symbiotic relationships, at least neutral relationships with these microbes, uh, just as the reservoir hosts of uh, these diseases do without being harmed by them. So it seems to me that, you know, a goal, one goal is not to figure out how to destroy the microbes but rather to figure out how to increase the possibility of living in a non-hostile relationship with it. I think that's beautifully put. And there's actually very good scientific evidence um, with turkey tail, for instance, as a prebiotic for the microbiome. There's a randomized placebo-controlled clinical study. There's two of them that's been published recently that shows that turkey tail mushroom mycelium is a probiotic or a prebiotic for the microbiome, enhancing it Bifidobacterium, uh, lactobacillus, and acidophilus, uh, way inhibiting Clostridium, Staphylococcus, and other bacteria. And uh, one group of patients with amoxicillin, which was which is very powerful antibiotic against lots of bacteria except for E. coli, they found that with patients randomized placebo-controlled study that took a turkey tail mushroom mycelium extract, it enhanced the beneficial bacteria and decrease the inflammatory bacteria. So I think Andy's absolutely hit the nail on the head is mushrooms are prebiotics helping for a healthy microbiome. And uh, since so much of your immunity starts in your gut, it's your front line of defense. So there is uh, research that shows that psilocybin could be a better therapeutic treatment for some mental health problems than a lot of our current pharmacological medications. And I'm wondering if you could speak just a bit about that, that research. First of all, psilocybin is a completely uh, non-harmful uh, agent. Uh, it, on the physical level, it's probably safer than any, any pharmaceutical drug known. Uh, the main risks are psychological, and those can be handled by attention to set and setting. And there is a tremendous potential to use that I think not only for the treatment of mental disorders, but for physical ones as well. But at the moment, it looks as if there's great momentum to have it become available for the treatment of drug-resistant depression, uh, for the treatment of obsessive-compulsive disorder, 
possibly uh, for the treatment of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so I think it is soon going to be made available for therapeutic use. I would agree. And um, there's over a dozen universities in the United States that have been approved by the FDA for clinical studies with psilocybin currently, over 25 universities around the world. I, I populate a website called mushroomreferences.com. It's unbranded. It's, it's just pure, purely the scientific articles. There's about 30, 35 articles there that speak to the, some of these studies that are ongoing. The psilocybin analogs also enhance neurogenesis. And we have found, and we have not published this, but I've spoken at Stanford Medical School recently on it, that when we stack the psilocybin analogs, which are totally legal, that don't get you high, uh, but they're very, very similar to psilocybin. When you stack it with lion's mane, uh, you have a beyond accumulative additive effect in neurogenesis and regrowth of neurons. So I see there's a lot of opportunity, uh, especially at microdosing of psilocybin and psilocybin analogs and combined with a natural product like lion's mane for enhancing mental acuity and preventing uh, a wide range of neuropathies. Uh, so this research is, is very much a big part of our focus right now. We have a number of papers that we're writing. And we are really excited by the, the, the results that we're seeing. I think psilocybin mushrooms make people smarter and nicer. <laughs> <laughs> so um, speaking about nicer, you mentioned that Andy gave you a wonderful birthday gift one year, but I happen to know that you gifted Andy with something really remarkable. Can you tell us what led you to name a mushroom after Andy? <laughs> well, I, I see Andy as a scientific intuitive, even though he's highly trained in Western medicine. I have come to learn that I trust Andy's intuition. He's far ahead of the pack. What I've come to learn about Andy is he is the bridge between Eastern and Western medicine. Even though Western medicine is based on reductionist thinking, Andy quickly saw that these are systems that are being involved. And the bridge between Eastern and Western medicine is the Andy Wild Bridge. It, it brings scientific discipline to the concept of, of complexity. And our immune systems are massively complex. And even though we have individualized drugs that are very good at certain targets, it doesn't lead to homeostasis. Um, and so building the foundation of immunity is really what I think... Um, Andy has done. And also, he published an article very early on on the botanical Harvard leaflets on psilocybe cyanescence. The article largely goes unrecognized, but I'm a, I'm a historian, of spe uh, so to speak, of the psilocybin mushroom movement. And it just seemed, for all the right reasons, to name a new psilocybin species uh, called psilocybe wileyi, <laughs> which of all places was growing in front of new Ginrich's a political office in Georgia. <laughs> These mushrooms have got a sense of humor. <laughs> and so it was so perfect. And so when I had the opportunity of naming a new species, um, you know, Andy was, was the person I wanted to, to immortalize. In the field of medicine, you can name a disease after your, yourself and get lots of credit. In the field of mycology, you dare not do that. It is it's, it's given as a honorary gift uh, to a leader to memorialize forever their contribution to the science of mycology. 
So there's no other greater gift than I could ever give uh, Andy than naming a species after him. So well, I'm very grateful. And also there's something appropriate about the fact that the word psilocybe in, in Greek means bald head. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for joining us for this very rich conversations about mushrooms, about immunity, and about maybe how they could uh, make us all and the, the, us as people and the planet healthier. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you both. (laughs) Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. Learn more about topics featured on the Body of Wonder podcast and how to apply them to your everyday health with My Wellness Coach, a free mobile app from the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Download today at mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu. That's mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu.